Go Tenant, the revolutionary new property software built by landlords and trusted by tenants. Go Tenant is your one-stop property management assistant that will take the pain away from your tenant recruitment process and the management of your properties. From advertising your property to maintenance reporting, electronic signatures to full property management software. Stop worrying about double bookings and the hassle of unnecessary admin because Go Tenants is here to enable you to seamlessly run your portfolio from anywhere in the world. Go to gotenants.co.uk to find out more. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Cup of Tea with Rick G. We are bang on nine o'clock again. We are so prompt. You can't knock us for that. So for those that are listening on the podcast, hi, we've got a great guest for you today. And for those that are listening live, you probably know who we've already got because we well, we were advertising it from yesterday. So before we start, folks, I want to make sure that we keep this as interactive as we possibly can. So what we like to do is for you to ask questions as we go and to say hi tell us where you're from, etc. Otherwise, it's going to be a very lonely journey for me just looking at my little green light on top of my uh, my computer. So we've got a great guest with us today, and we have got Mr. Andy Haynes. And Andy um, has got a very interesting story. So Andy is a full-time property investor and entrepreneur, I would say, a, a general all-round business person. Um, and Andy also has a, or is a partner in a law practice as well. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So without further ado, Andy, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hello, Rick. Thanks for welcoming me here. And of course, I've got my cup of tea. It does say Andrew on it. Um, I, mine's, um, I've actually got coffee. I don't drink tea in the mornings. Tea's more of an evening drink for me, but cup of tea rhymes a little bit better than cup of coffee with Rick G. So you see what I did there. I so Andy, um, I'm going to go straight over to you then. So you used to work as a, um, as a well, I don't know what you did in the BBC, but I don't know, a presenter, but you, you used to work for the BBC. Is that right? Yeah, I had many years working at the BBC, Rick. It was a fantastic day job. I loved it. Every day was different. And, you know, cut and thrust of breaking edge of news and I've been to all sorts of things such as armed sieges, I've been to road accidents, I've been to major fires but I've also been to a lot of nice things as well such as royal visits and all those kinds of things. Um, every day was very different going to work. I started off as being the presenter of the travel news on the breakfast show and then after that they gave me my very own early breakfast show uh, so that was the person that wakes up the audience between five and six to warm them up so that then they're ready and lined up for the big crew to come in between six and nine on the, the proper breakfast show. And I love that. I did that for about nine years. It's very difficult uh, because you have to get up at four in the morning, uh, which is still like the middle of the night, and get to work and sound as if you're wide awake club at five o'clock in the morning. But I loved it. It was a great, fun life. And then from there, I moved into the newsroom. And I became a, a news journalist, a broadcast journalist, as they call them in radio. And I went to writing loads of features for the website because that was up and coming at the BBC at that time. And then we started doing lots of live streamings. I produced a lot of radio shows. So my speciality was the Saturday and Sunday breakfast show. I used to produce those uh, regularly every single week. So no late nights the night before because you had to be at work early the next day. Uh, but my real speciality was in outside broadcasts. So I could take out the radio car, go and set up in the middle of a town or a city, and we would create a radio show from nothing, invite guests to come along and tell a story uh, over the airwaves with people that, of course, can't see you. So you have to be very imaginative with the words and how you describe things. And you bring the whole world to life through the magic of radio. So was that a local radio station, Andy? I know it was BBC, but was it was it BBC Worcester? Was it, you know, or does it go out nationally? I don't understand how that works. Well, it went out nationally because now we've got the internet. So it went out internationally, I suppose you could say. Um, but I was working at BBC Hereford and Worcester. So you're right, locally based in Worcester. They got studios there near the town centre. And, uh, you know, it was great. You go there and you broadcast across Herefordshire and Worcestershire. And you've still got that presenting voice. I don't suppose that ever leaves you. Is that something you had before you went into radio or was it kind of trained into you? Well, it has sort of evolved, if I'm honest with you. Believe it or not, before I joined the BBC, and it was a big dream of mine to go and join the BBC, it was something that before the BBC I was doing other jobs. I started off as a retail salesman in a, a camera shop in, in town in Worcester. And then I went on then to sell yes, cars. Sir. Sorry? 
The Jessops. No, it was Dixon's. They were in the shambles. They're not there anymore. You can't. I do think Dixon's exist nationally, um, but then they got taken over by various people. I think PC World took them over and Curry's. Um, but I started off there in the shambles, and then from there I went selling cars. Um, you know, real Arthur Daly, believe it or not. Except I was too honest, so I didn't really fit in with that very often. And so I then worked through the ranks and ended up being a dealer principal. Um, but then I just always wanted to work for the BBC, and believe it or not. I just wrote to them. I asked them for a job. I sort of coaxed my, my way in, and they gave me a full-time job with them. Um, and so my story is, if I always sound like this, the answer is no. Believe it or not, when I was much younger, I had a major stammer. And I still do, to a certain extent. It may come out once or twice on this interview. If I say the wrong words, it will trip me up. I tend to know the right sentences, the right words to use that don't trip me up. But sometimes I forget and they come out in the wrong order. So if they do, you know why. But you can overcome anything you want to. I overcame my stammer and became a radio presenter. That is amazing advice, Andy. I mean, to, to okay, let's talk. Is it okay if we talk about that for a second? Yeah, Your stammer is all right. Now, I didn't know that. And I've known you a long time. And, you know, you do presenting for, for us on occasions on some of our webinars and things like that. And I've seen you obviously on stage and, uh, you know, you presented on stage, et cetera. Um, so I was talking to somebody else, in fact, on Saturday night. I'm not going to mention any names. Um, um, that person has got a stammer. And they were saying to me that, you know, it really does affect your confidence when it comes to public speaking. How, I mean, you've obviously got over that and you clearly have because that doesn't come across to me and I didn't know. And thank you for sharing that. But how do you, how does somebody that's trying to battle with that kind of issue overcome it in order to be able to get out there and start feeling more confident? Well, if I have a lack of confidence, my stamina is more pronounced. It really comes out then. So I have to really rehearse. I have to know what I'm going to be do. I have to have that full of confidence in myself that I am 100% and I can make it happen. Because if I'm less than that, then the stammer will come out in all sorts of shapes and forms. Normally it's the letters P. If I said the prime minister, for example, I said, I said it just then, but very often that can trip me up, the word the in front of something. So I might just say prime minister rather than the prime minister. And luckily I can say it now on this demonstration, but normally I can't say that kind of thing. No, it's really interesting. And thank you for sharing that. Is this something that, um does it get better or is it or you just have to physically train yourself and think about things before you say them you do have to the interesting thing is that i know what i want to say i just don't know what order the words are going to come out and the reason for that is if you do think about it that's when you tend to stammer i now have the confidence in me that i can stand up and speak i don't have to think and then stand up and speak because if you think about it that then makes the stammer worse getting those first few words out is really hard so I trust myself that I can speak off my cuff and that words will come out in a meaningful order and it will be what the audience is wanting to hear. Well, I think you pretty much smashed that, Andy. I think, you know, the way that you come across and I've, I've seen you speak, I don't know how many times, I don't know, loads of loads and loads of times. And you are very professional in the way that you present yourself and you're very articulate. So that is an absolute credit. And thank you for sharing that. I know it's slightly off topic, but I just thought, you know, for people that are watching this that may be going through a similar thing, then, it, you know, is it true to say, Andy, that you can overcome anything? You really can overcome anything. I wanted to work for the BBC, as you mentioned earlier, and I made it happen. Uh, I was as far away from being a radio presenter when I first started uh, as ever. I didn't have a degree in media. I had no broadcast experience. I didn't really work for any radio station. I did do a little bit with Radio Wyvern earlier, but I was on their sales team. That's right. nothing to do with uh, with broadcasting. I used to advertise uh, years ago with Radio Wyvern. Do you remember a guy called Mike Morgan, or was that yeah, before? I know. Yeah, I know Mike. He was there after I was there. Yeah. Yeah, so I used to advertise quite a lot with uh, Wyvern. One of my pubs, in fact, got a long time ago now, probably about 15, 20 years ago. But I must admit, I did join them as a salesperson because I wanted them to spot me as talent to go on the radio. That never happened. Uh, and so I left there and did various other jobs. But I just decided that I needed to work for the BBC. I'd always wanted to. And I wrote to them and got an interview with them and made it happen. Yeah, in a true Napoleon Hill style. Yeah, it was. You think about it and you go out there and get it. I'm a firm believer of that. What um, what led you to leave then, Andy? So, you know, you had your dream job. You went through doing all the other bits and bobs that kind of, I suppose most of us will go out and, and pursue whilst they decide what they actually want to do with their lives. You got your dream job and you obviously, you know, loved it. Why did you leave? 
Well, for me, the BBC was the pinnacle of jobs I ever could go for. I did really enjoy it. They're great people, great audience, and the listeners are, are brilliant. And what I did was I got involved in their pension scheme. It was a brilliant pension scheme at the BBC, uh, final pension salary and all those kinds of things, although that changed latterly. But at the time I started, you know, the thought of a final pension, I was in, I was putting away all the money I could afford to put away because I still needed to afford to live. And we had a family and all those kinds of things. And I went to my IFA and said to him, look, I've got this wonderful BBC pension. How much will I retire on when I get to that eventual age? And the amount of money that he gave me to live off, I was astounded. So I'm thinking, how can I possibly afford to live on just that small amount of money? And I couldn't afford to save any more. So for me, property investing was going to be my way of topping up my pension. I obviously understood residual income. I understood the benefits of it. I suppose I first got involved in property because I could see my own daughter was probably never, ever going to be able to afford her own place. And so I started to get some properties thinking that she could have a house or something like, like that in the future. Um, but then the, the it got inside of me and that, um, that little thing of, hey, property is great, residual income coming in. So I built a portfolio. And that was easy. In the early 2000s, 2001 is when I started in, in real earnest, up to 2007, 2008, it was so easy. You could pay too much for your property, spend too much on the refurb, yeah. and it still was worth loads more money because the prices yeah. were shooting up. They were almost paying you, weren't they, to buy property back in the Mortgage Express days? Yeah, 125% yeah. mortgages as well you could get because they knew the value was going up, and they gave you the extra money to spend on the property to add value to it. Of yeah. course, what really sorted us all out back then was that crash of 2008, 2009. That's mm. when people were losing everything. The whole portfolio was going, and I was determined that wasn't going to happen to me. And so that's then when I dug deep, and I went on further property training, and you know all about that. And that property training did teach me a lot of things that I didn't know previously. But as a result of it, it gave me back the confidence of thinking, I can build a property portfolio, stop poking it with a stick. If I take it really seriously, and I'm running a business here, as opposed to just a little sideline, uh, that actually I could do really well with it. And that's exactly what happened. And did uh, we you, now have a... you were still with the BBC, Andy? I did. So uh, I and I would recommend to anybody, yes, grow a property portfolio, but don't <laughs> give up the day job. Uh, if you love your day job, that's brilliant. You're mortgageable and you know you're likely to be able to get some mortgages and that. Um, if you don't like your day job, that's brilliant because that will motivate you to go out there in your spare time and do something with property. Yeah, and that's really sage advice. And I say that to everybody. And although, you know, people that have read my book, um, uh, yes, I was a police officer, you know, but I, I took a sabbatical. So for me, you know, I had 18 months to forge our business in order for me to be able to resign. If it didn't happen, then I was able to go back. So I did have a safety net. And it's really important. And thank you for sharing that, Andy, to everyone that's listening is, don't just rush out then, give up your job and say, right, that's it. I'm in, you know, I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound. I know there are people that do that, but if you've still got a job, you, you know, you've got to feed your family at the end of the day. You've got to put a roof over your head. And for lots of people, you've got to be mortgageable. So if you're continuing to work, maybe you could go part time. Maybe you can take a career break. But I just want to reiterate what Andy's just said is, you know, keeping that day job whilst you forge your business is so important. And I also knew that I wouldn't be able to get mortgages until I'd been self-employed for three years. Right. So I looked at the market. I analyzed the fact that the property price crash of 2008, 2009 was going to last a long time until we fully recovered. And at that time, you couldn't really get mortgages. They would offer you a mortgage. But the very next day, they would pull the mortgage offer because the property price had dropped again. And so they really couldn't give you any money. So I figured out that was a good time to go part time with the BBC, start growing my property portfolio in a big time. And I then became prolific at doing options because it didn't matter the prices were dropping at that time. So long as the rent covered the mortgage, I knew the prices would bounce back up. That if I did loads of property options, then that would take me then to where I wanted to be. And, is, and so, is that what you just focused on solely then, Andy, just options? At that time, because you yeah. couldn't get mortgages. It wasn't about whether I was mortgageable or not. It was the fact that they, if they offered you a mortgage, the chances are they would pull it because the prices had dropped again on that property. And am I and, right in saying then at that point in time, because uh, the market had dipped, well, substantially dipped, as we all know, people were over leveraged, people were at 125% loan to value. Um, was it easier then because lots of people were in negative equity in order to be able to get options? 
Yeah, I mean, I was getting a lot more options there, not necessarily from landlords that were over leveraged. These were people who were residential people that needed to maybe move job to a different part of the country. They had their mortgage. They couldn't sell the house because it was negative equity, but they had another rent to be paying in their new home. And so I was able to step in and take over their existing mortgage and I would rent it out to people. I made the mortgage company know what, what, what I was doing. I made sure that everything was above board, but I acquired loads of properties that way from people who couldn't sell, but needed to move on with their life. And how different was it then in terms of marketing than it is now? I mean, uh, were there as many people in the industry back then than there seem to be now? Because, you know, lots of people will say, well, you know, there are people doing this all over the place. What was it like, you know, back in 2006, 2007 for you? In some ways, I felt a bit of a trailblazer. Don't get me wrong. I didn't set this scheme up. I just learned what others were doing and actually went out there and grasped it and made it happen. But I could see the benefit in it. It worked for the person trying to move home, but also worked for me as well. We couldn't get mortgages. And I knew I could fix the price. Um, and I, I took loads of properties that were in negative equity. None of those are now. So I've now made my money because I've had them long enough. And so property options, although that's a jargon word, we wouldn't use that in front of a client. All I simply had to do was to go and talk to them, find out what their property problem was and fix it. And to many of them, it just meant me taking over their house, me making their mortgage payments, me taking all the maintenance and cares away from them. They could move on and start a new life wherever it was that they wanted to be. So how long did it take you, Andy, to forge that business? So you were then you're saying, you know what, I don't need to be with the BBC now. Now is the time to move on. Well, I went part-time BBC, full-time property, and I wanted to stay with the BBC for a long, long time. But like anything, things evolve, people move on. And in a way, you know, I was given up every Friday and Saturday. And that's a lot to us to be early at work on a Saturday morning, a Sunday morning, especially when your friends want to go out and maybe the family want to go out the night previous. You know, I always used to have to think about drinking water, being in my bed if I could by 10 o'clock to make sure I got enough hours sleep. And, you know, by way of quality of life, I decided that was time was it, really. I still do help them at time to time. When we get election broadcasts, the national um, elections that happen, I then will go and work for the BBC and I'll, I'll go to a local polling station and I'll broadcast and do various things there, getting election results in through the night. And that's always fun. I'm still at the cutting thrust of news. I try to wean myself off it because I know there's no such thing as positive news, really. Everything is sort of negative. But you can uh, do your own broadcast, your own sort of news broadcast as a podcast or something, because you've still got that voice. I mean, there's no doubt. Come on, I mean, we've got people listening to this. Give us some feedback, folks. I know the people on the podcast can't uh, they can't comment interactively, but who thinks Andy's still got a really good broadcasting voice? Because I certainly do. That's very kind. Thank you very much indeed. So, Andy, um, talk to us a little bit now about where you are. So let's leave the BBC behind. You've got your portfolio now. Um, there's lots of other things that you do. So what does your portfolio look like at the moment? Is it something that you're continuing to grow? Yes, we are. I do it along with my wife, Karen. In fact, Karen now runs our business. Uh, that frees me up to go and do a lot of other things, such as presentation, uh, which I do a lot of. I do a lot of broadcasting on webinars. And also I have my own solicitor practice, which I know we'll maybe touch on a little bit later on. So our portfolio is quite well formed now. But when we started, my speciality was single family lets. And I know that's not necessarily the most sexy. A lot of people want to do HMOs, and I get it. It makes great wages, and you know you bring in a, a lot of money from those very quickly if you set it up in the right way. But for me, I recognize that a lot of families also needed homes. And if I could buy the house in the right area, so probably a good school catchment area, we could then have mum and dad living there with the kids. They'd be going to the local school, so they wouldn't want to stay there for just six months. They'd be there for six years while the children went through the school. And if they'd got siblings, then maybe they'd be there then for eight, nine or 10 years. And so this now is their home. It's not just a, a roof over their head. And so we have brilliant tenants that have been with us for years that although we make less profit than we would if it was an HMO, we have far less maintenance. So the tenants change their own carpets. They decorate their own house. We have them ring up and say, well, we want to change the tiles in the bathroom or can we put a new kitchen in or we want to landscape the garden. And it's wonderful that we don't have the maintenance because we make it their home for them to live in. And now the kids in some cases have left home and have started their own families. They still come back to our property because that's their family home to come and meet mum and dad. So for us, it's been a great success. It did mean we probably needed to buy two or three or four properties to everyone HMO to get the income. 
But then in the equity of moving up prices, we have four houses going up in value rather than just one. So it's a bit of a balancing act. So that's how we started. And we still love single family lets. But now we recognize that you get great income from HMOs and we have got HMOs as well. But we now tend to be freehold to leasehold title splitting experts. So that's where there's a property that's full of flats, but they're still on one freehold. They're not title split. And we then will take them and refinance <coughs> them as individual flats, but keep the whole block. So we have in Kidderminster, we have one whole block of eight flats where that's a bit like an HMO really in many ways, because it's one building has eight flats in it. We have different tenants to each of those flats. Um, but because it's a flat, it's their own home. They're not sharing. Uh, then, you know, we tend to get people staying there for a long, long time. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that then, Andy. So um, freehold to leasehold, leasehold to freehold, freehold to leasehold, title splitting. Freehold to leasehold, title splitting. And freehold to leasehold, title split. So you're buying, um, you're buying a block of flats, you're buying it freehold. Yes. And then you're splitting the titles individually yes. for each flat. And then potentially then you can refinance those individual properties with their own mortgage product. Yeah, so let me give you one example of a very small, simple house that I did in Worcester. And this particular house, it was up for auction. The guide price was 165 to 175. So I don't know what the reserve price was, but I'm guessing about 170. The long and short of it is it didn't sell. And I managed to buy that property for 135,000 outside of the auction. Now that was one house, but it was already split into two flats. Upstairs was two bedroom flat, downstairs a one bedroom flat. And what we did was we then put it on one mortgage for 135,000. We put in 75%, so, sorry, 25% got 75% mortgage, but it owed us 135,000. Karen and I then spent 15,000 pounds on doing the property up. So that was renewing the kitchens, decorating carpets, all those things to make it look a lovely place. And what we then did was we then had the, them individually mortgaged so the two bedroom flat came in at 105,000. Yeah. The one bedroom flat came in at 95,000. So those two together added up to 200,000. When we then had a 75% mortgage on that 200,000, that's the 150,000 pounds we had back. So if you think about it, 150,000, that gave me 15,000 pounds back that we'd put in to refurbish them and gave me back 135,000, which we bought the house for in the first place. So I now have a property has got two flats in it, two separate titles going up in value with none of our money left into it. I had immediately £50,000 worth of equity in it and two happy tenants living in a great place. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, we, we adopt this strategy as well in some of our properties, uh, as you know. You know, um, I don't want to labour on that to, today because um, so how hard is it to do title splits? For those that are watching, for those that are listening on the podcast or even watching on YouTube, um, you know, title splitting isn't um it's it's not it's not that easy is it sometimes depending on the nature of the deal well the theory is easier than the practice if i'm honest mm -hmm. with you uh so that property in worcester we had to wait at least six months because the six month rule to better refinance it because we used a high street lender to give us the mortgages on those two flats mm -hmm. um, i've done other similar ones with commercial lenders commercial lenders are more flexible than the high street lenders except they take an absolute age to get through the process and you have to sort of tell them your shoe size and what size the you know you comb your hair and things they like that. For warranties, Andy, did they ask for warranties? Warranties in what sense of, of like an NHBC warranty? Yeah, well, uh, all similar. Yeah. Well, on the one block of eight flats I have in Kidderminster, yes, that was a brand new build, uh, and that again was a big learning curve for me because I thought I bought it directly from the builder whilst it was still scaffolding around it. We negotiated the price. I then immediately bought it at the time when it was brand new. Yeah. And because I bought it for one price, I'm gonna make up the figures here if that's okay, just for the benefit of, of listeners, but we bought it for 500,000, let's say, the whole block of eight flats. And I immediately knew that each flat was worth 100,000. So I've got an 800,000 product that only cost me 500,000. But because it was brand new, the mortgage company couldn't see 800,000. They said, yeah, we, we, can, we don't say 800,000, but you only paid 500. So yeah. they only wanted to finance it at the 500. Had I have bought it when it was run down and then added value to it and you know maybe finished off the build, they would have seen that I then had made them worth 800,000 pounds. I get that. And did they give you a vacant valuation or was it a valuation based on full occupancy? 
well, they, they were happy to give it um, as a full, as an empty occupancy on the 500,000. Mm -hmm. But I had to wait till the building was technically a used building. I don't know that's a second-hand building rather than a brand new building. And that kicks in when it's 12 months old. So when we got to 12 months, I was then able to refinance it as individual flats and mm -hmm. take out, out the money. But what they then do, because it was eight flats, they would give me a 75% loads of value, but they would only give me 75% of their fire sale price because right. they said, if those properties all come up to you all at once, we're going to have eight properties all to sell. That's a problem for us. One coming for sale isn't a problem, but if you have all eight, then we know we'll have to sell them for a cheaper price. So yeah. they valued it 75% of the fire sale price rather than mm -hmm. the market price. I think, you know, it really does depend on who you use, doesn't it? I don't know which mortgage provider you were using. Uh, we've just had a refinance on our big project, you know, the big deal that actually is opposite your offices. Um, so for those that don't know, um, we bought a property for just over a million pounds about a year and a half ago. Uh, we spent a lot of money on it. We take uh, 12 months to get planning permission and we've converted the whole street, it's the whole street into flats. Um, and what our intention was, Andy, was to do the same thing. So to get... Uh, title split and um, refinance at individual prices. Now, some of the units we managed to get that, some of the units we only got commercial valuation on on the whole um, property based on yield. Um, so it really does depend on who you go with. I mean, either way, for us, it was a good deal. Um, do you, who did you use, by the way? Well, the mortgages, I've used various mortgages on each of the different products, but that big one of eight flats, I went with fleet mortgages. Okay, yeah, we went. And there's a very good reason why I did that. This is a buy and hold project. I'm not looking to sell it. Uh, yeah. These are great. They're in the town centre. The town centre of Kilimanjaro is expanding. You know, so I'm quite happy with where they are. And I went on a product that I didn't have to title split. They realised that each flat has its own value, and they're happy to value it at 100,000 each. Mm. But what they said to me is that let's not split the title. Let's leave it on one title. So if ever they did have to snatch it back from me, I don't want that to happen. Of course I don't. But they'd only have to take back one title rather than eight. Right. But they still gave you a valuation based on each individual. They property. did. That's quite rare. But but Fleet Mortgages did that for me. And you've got some nice um, comments coming in. I just want to share them with you. Um, Andy H., one of the nicest guys in property. That's very nice. That's, That's uh, lovely. Thank you. I can't see who's posted it, unfortunately, on here. Uh, got a good morning from Leighton. Hi, Leighton. Um, I'm here, Rick. Looking forward to hearing Andy Haynes. Fantastic. So that's just what I wanted to share that with you. A very nice comment there. Um, Andy, so let's move forwards then with that. A little bit of feedback. Um, your property journey, you've obviously been really successful, but that doesn't stop there, does it? So you've since grown and you've you know you carried on to invest and i know your wife karen helps you with your property portfolio um but now you are also a partner in a law firm so how did that happen <laughs> well it's quite an interesting story really because i explained how i went uh full-time into part-time into then uh you know being full-time then property investing so full-time bbc part-time bbc full-time property i wanted karen to come and join me she had a, a day job uh, at that time and she took a long time to actually leave that job to come and join me in the property business and I think this will help a lot of people on this webinar because um, for me and Karen to work together with husband and wife it's not always easy I'm sure uh, your relationship is just the same as our relationship full of ups and downs I couldn't possibly say just in case my dear wife is watching no, but I know in real terms that we all have those moments, as much as we love our partners, that sometimes we have those little words that uh, because, well, that's what husbands and wives do. Uh, and at the end of the day, Karen's biggest fear was coming to work for me. She said, Andy, I don't want to work for you. Uh, that's the last thing I want to do. And of course, I said to her, well, I don't want to work for you. What are we going to do about this? So we, have, we made a pact. So I said, look, Karen, I will give you the whole of our property business to go away and run. You can be the managing director of it. You can run the whole portfolio. You can have the final say. And she turned to me and said, but I know you won't make that happen, Andy. And I said, look, I promise you I will. All I want you to do is to come and run things past me. Not that I know better. I'm not saying that at all. But I want you to listen to my viewpoint, my opinion on something. But you take my opinion, you take your opinion, but you can choose what you want to go and do. And that, to be honest with you, has worked quite well. What that gave me was the bonus to free up my time to go and speak on stage and I present around the country. But then it gave me a lot of free time and I chose to set up a property lawyers uh, because I recognize that we need in the property industry good property solicitors who understand and get what the investor wants. A lot of solicitors say they understand, but they don't really understand. And I recognize that um, there's lots of good solicitors out there 
and that I needed to find my own. So I went and found a great guy called Andrew Bradley. And he was doing a lot of my work for me. And I said to him, look, we ought to set up our own company where we can then help and be the place to go if people have got any property uh, things that they want to have contracts drawn up on. If they're buying and selling property, what can we do to help them? And so we became a bit of a specialist in property solutions for people. We've now expanded since beyond that. And we do such things as corporate and commercial structures, we do debt collection. We'll do litigation of taking tenants to court and that kind of thing. But we also do family law, employment law, contracts, immigration even. So we've now got a great team of solicitors that do far more than just property. But the essence of it was because I wanted to have a property solicitor that would help property investors just like me to have a great service. Mm, absolutely. How hard was it putting that together? No, not coming from that background um, can I just say, if I had to do it again, would I? It was such a difficult thing to go through. You've got to be regulated. Of course you have. And, and I'm regulated personally by the Solicitors Regulation Authority, as so is Andrew and our systems and our procedures. So we had to have offices set up. We had to have floor plans of the offices. We had to have staff names. And we hadn't even set up the business here. But in order to become licensed, you have to pretend that you are in order to. So we had all the costs going out but none of the income coming in because we weren't able to practice because we weren't licensed. Luckily, um, after about six to eight months, we did get licensed and we were then able to sort of repay some of that money uh, to clear the debt that we had because we had to put that in place before we could. So that was my role. I had to invest in, in the business. And Andrew Bradley brought the solicitor side of things. And together, we've, we've built a great team now. And how, I mean, did you did you start from scratch or did Andrew bring clients with him or was it literally, right, now we're here, we've got it all sorted, we've got our offices, how do you get your customers? Well, we did start from scratch. I mean, I guess Andrew did have a bit of a following because there are people that like to go with uh, a solicitor. It's a bit like uh, a dentist or a GP or something. You know, if you get on well with somebody, you do want, want to follow them. Um, a bit like a mortgage broker, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, accountant, you know, you want to follow them wherever it is that, that they go. But most solicitor practices have a clause saying you can't take any clients with you. So Andrew sort of came with no clients, but over time, one or two of those then realized where he was. They found him, tracked him down, and came to him. Similarly, I was working in the property world, and lots of people saying to me, Where to get your work done? And I told them about Andrew, and they would come to me. So we did start from scratch, but we did have a, a base also that we started to sort of try and entice people to come and join us. So also on this, I mean, I want to go back. I mean, I'll probably go a little bit disjointed here, Andy, because I want to talk a bit about mindset in a minute, because you've gone from, uh, you've gone through the transition period that quite a lot of people do go through, um, you know, sort of having that security at work, being able to put food on the table, from being able to, you've got a pension, albeit you say, you know, it's not a massive one, but you do have a pension. And then making that break, going into the unknown, going into working for yourself, the what ifs, what if it all goes wrong? What if it crashes down behind me? And, and it's a very lonely journey. So in fact, let's do it now. So going through all of that, did you have anybody you know, alongside you helping you? Were you surrounded by a network of people or was it just you and Karen saying, right, you know, we've got to make this happen? Well, to be honest with you, it was very much me and Karen. Um, you know, it was a very difficult choice leaving the BBC. I did love that job. Um, but I knew that I, I was trying all sorts of ideas throughout my life. I've always looked at different ways of making money. And I guess it's a, a true that you fail your way to success. Lots of things worked. Lots of things didn't work out. And I'm proud to say that because at least I was having a go. My mindset was right that I knew that if I kept pushing and pushing and pushing, I would break through eventually. And Karen just said to me one day, she said, Andy, you've been talking about this for such a long time now. You just need to put up or shut up. And she was absolutely right. And so that was the bit I let. She said, but whatever you choose, I'll hang on to your shirt tail and I'll come with you. And I thought that was quite a lovely thing to say. And so I did give up the BBC and, and I sort of went, I burnt my bridges to a certain extent. Yes, I can still go back and do that. I've still got the skill set. But you have got to burn your bridges. You know, you've got to, I know that if you do that, you will find a way of succeeding. Some of us in that swimming pool, if we're hanging on to the side, we're never going to learn to swim. And I needed to get in the deep end and learn to swim. And because I had no option to succeed, I had to make it happen. And did you have that little, I don't know what you call him, that little monkey thing on the side of your shoulder sort of tapping you all the time saying it's not going to work, it's not going to work? I still have it. It's still there. And how every one of us have it. How do you deal with that, Andy? Because it's, you're right, it's always there. And I always say that, you know, um, we always, we can only have one thought at a time. 
because that's what we are. We're human beings. And right now I'm in the room, I'm talking to you. I can't think about anything else. But what I always say to you is, you know, um, worries, if you've got a worry in your mind, make sure it's worth worrying about. So make sure it's a big worry because, you know, lots of the times we get all of these little tiny self-limiting beliefs that really don't matter that much. And in about two or three weeks time, in fact, they were that insignificant, you've forgotten about them, but that never goes away. And I always say to people that are on my program and what have you, look, you know, worries are always gonna be there. The what ifs are always going to be there. It's just, they're gonna be at different levels throughout your entrepreneurial journey. So, you know, um, where you are now, where I am now, yes, we still get them, but they're just a lot bigger than they were before. Now, how do you deal with that? I mean, sometimes, um, you know, these self-doubts, they creep in and sometimes it can prevent you from taking action, can't it? Yeah, I think there's all sorts of things that will hold you back. One of the worst, Rick, if I'm honest, is people. People, uh, they get jealous. Uh, you know, it's, it's, they want to pull you down right, left and centre. Social media, not necessarily in the quarters I tend to mix, but there's a lot of people. You know, we're all reading it all day long in newspapers or seeing it on television of people who are trolling others and, you know, saying horrible things for whatever reason. And I think that if you can overcome people and learn that not everyone's going to like you, you've just got to accept that. I mean, we all like to be liked. Of course we do. But some of us won't gel with others and it's okay for them not to like me or not to like you and we just have to accept that's how it is there's enough others of us that do like us hopefully that's that's your partner uh hopefully that's not the people you're you're in business with but well, they somebody you know, else's partner i don't know yeah maybe you know but if you're in the right group and, and i think you do need to have a peer group that get what you're doing and will support and help you to move forward so a lot of property meetings that you can go to you know it is lonely doing it on your own and i think you need to get to the right group of people your hmo group on facebook for example rick you know it's a great place for people to go and feel safe where people are going to not troll them they're actually going to encourage them and support them and answer all the questions some of those silly questions that we all need to ask at the start you know it's okay to ask them because there's people on there that that, that will help and I think it's that that you need to overcome not everyone's going to like you and you just need to get over that but the little voice still tells me you're you're rubbish those people don't like you what did you say that for and I just need to turn around and say yeah but there's people that enjoyed what I said there are people that like me there are people that want to listen to the message that I've got to share yeah and I, I suppose it's all about having a goal a dream and and a vision to get out there and make it happen yeah you've got to live your life Andy haven't you not somebody yeah. else's not the way that somebody else perceives you to be able to live your life yeah. you, know, you gave up a great job i gave up an amazing job i had a very good career in the police and um, i was all right i was quite good at what i did even though i say it myself but um you know i don't want to live somebody else's life that was never going to give me the time back to spend with my family now i'm here today i'm able to you know interview some amazing people like yourself every morning finish work at three o'clock every day and i don't work weekends you know i would never have that life before if i'd have stayed in that rut, just doing the same old, because that's what I was used to. And I was in that comfort zone. Now, when I was in the police, and I say this freely, and, and I do tell, you know, I share this quite a lot. I was earning less than £2,000 a month. Um, well, I was bringing home less than £2,000 a month. And you know what, I was in that zone. And I thought that was a great income and you adapt to your means. And I didn't know any different. And then when I started to look at inspirational people, and they were saying, look, you know, you can do far more with less. And you can you can earn more money and get and have more time back. And I just thought, yeah, whatever. Of course, it's great for you saying that, but how do I do it? Unless you change that mindset and get into that way of thinking, then you're never going to make it happen. You know, you need to put that one foot forward. And I think family, like you said, um, you've got Karen on board. Sometimes people aren't in that position. So have you got any advice for people that don't have their family on board, Andy? And that's quite common. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always say to people in that position, you need to have a word with, with your family and just say, look, I understand that you don't like what I'm doing. And as a little sidestep, I think a lot of people don't like what we're doing because they're trying to protect us. You know, what, you're getting involved in property. Oh, my goodness, that's got to be dangerous. Brexit, have we not heard what's happening? Prices are going to dip, you'll lose your shirt. They tell you all those things to try and protect you. But I think if you educate yourself, you know what you're doing, then you absolutely can give people a better lifestyle. So I just say to people to say, look, you know, with you or without you, I am going to be doing this, but I want to do it for you. So, you know, just get off my case and just let me do this because I promise you, I can give you a better lifestyle. And I say to people, be you, 
just go out and believe in yourself. Um, you talked about the little monkey on your shoulder, the one that's feeding all that negative to you. I listen to a lot of audio books. Uh, I find it very difficult to read. I can read. I like reading, but I never get through a lot of books, whereas on Audible, I can get through at least two books a month, if not more, and I'm loving it. You know, any downtime, I can put it in, and that is no space then for negative voices. Oh, Andy's just disappeared. Hang on a second. Let's hopefully we'll uh, get him back. Just bear with us, folks. Sorry, okay. Andy. You just okay, back. For a minute. Are you back? I am back here. Oh, Apologies to everyone. Um, so I always say to people, listen to those positive books, because if you're listening to those positive books, that is taking the mind space of that negative dog on your shoulder, that negative monkey that's talking to you. It won't be talking to you while you're listening to a positive book. And go out there and make it happen. You know, be you. you. You don't have to be an Andy Haynes. You don't have to be a Rick Gannon. You've just got to be you who you are and become the best you that you can be to make it happen. Andy, you're talking about books. I just want to dip into this a little bit. What do you think about, um, I think that books, unless they're case study books, you know, and they're walkthrough books on people's journeys, um, a lot of books that I tend to read, and I do read a lot of books, and I probably get through two a week um in the gym on audio books as well so but i find very often that books can just be someone's opinion well i think very much it's someone's opinion but the point i like about books is it triggers things thoughts in my head and so then i make them my own opinion and i may agree with them or i may not but i might agree with just half of what they're saying and i have to bolt on the other half that i want to believe in so i just think it's a stimulus it's a thought provoker, even if they're saying the complete opposite to what you believe, so long as that then triggers the thought and you say, no, I don't agree with that, this is my thought, you then know how you want to move forward. So I don't think you need to go along with what people are saying, it's just there to stimulate you to know what you think. There's a lot of confliction in some of the books, you know, you've got, you've, I'm not going to make it mention any um, any uh, authors, but you know, you've got, you read one perhaps, you know, one week, and then the next week you read a similar mindset book, and it says something completely different, you're like, oh man, so what I tend to do is if I find a book that I like, I tend to study that book and don't just read it. I go and I read it again or listen to it again. And, and then I adapt the principles in that book. And I find for me that works really well. Yeah. And for me, I do a lot of journaling. So I have a book with me nearly all the time and I will make notes down. So as thoughts come into my head, maybe stimulated from a book I've been listening to, but it'll conjure up a thought of something I need to do. I'll journal it. I'll write it down. Because I always, I'm sure you're like me, Rick, that I think, oh, that's a great idea. I'll remember and do that when I get home. You get home and think, actually, what was it I was going to do? No, I mean, so I carry a journal with me all the time, and I capture those little thoughts so I can go away and make those those things happen. I fire in the mornings. I get up early, and that's not because I want to. I'm not a naturally early person, but I have to get up early in order to fit everything in my day. Otherwise, I just couldn't do it. And I'm on fire between hmm, five a.m and probably 1 p.m. And that's when my thought process really starts to kick in. From 1 p.m. onwards, I tend to pick up on my admin tasks because that's when of all my um, all my productivity, energy, and everything then starts to slow down. Um, and when you talk about journaling, that's when my ideas happen in the morning. So I carry an iPad with me pretty much anywhere. Well, here you go, look, I've got my Apple Pencil here um, because I get ideas in the morning like they are going out of fashion and I write them down. And if I didn't do that, yes, very much so it would just end up a big mess so um Andy your mindset is awesome you know and I think you know it's, it's so positive to listen to you um we kind of went off track there going to bring it back into your um your legal practice and I want to talk about now as a human being I want to help as many people as I can um that's why I joined the police I want to pay it forwards and I mean that um you know as I'm a very transparent person. I think people that you know that follow me know that, and um, and I know lots of other people are in a similar mindset. So we like to give, we like to share. Now, when you start off in business, you have to look after the bottom line. And when you are in still in the money mindset that you were before, and you start to look at legal fees, and you start to see things like, well, you need a contract for this and a contract for that, then you see the price that's attached to it. It may put some people off and it may drive them down to asking to borrow legal documents from Facebook groups. And then people being people will um, will say, yes, here's a legal document. Um, and what do you think? What do you think about that? What are the ramifications of sharing those sorts of documents? Well, I think well, we've all just got to be grown up, really. And, and we've got to take, take our, our own choices. choices. 
There's a lot of feedback I'm getting at this end, just so you know, Rick. Um, but we do need to make our own choice. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think, for example, it's okay to share a loan agreement because the terms of the loan, we just need to alter. But the essence of the clauses are absolutely fine. You know, they will suit person to person to person. Well, sometimes when we do a joint venture agreement or an option agreement, that's something that's a little bit different because each option is going to be unique because there are different circumstances. There's going to be... Um, different terms you need to put in. It's to be different kinds of property, different kinds of mortgages. And all of those things um, are regulated to a certain extent when you want to exercise that option. You need to go to a lawyer to do that kind of thing. Excuse me, sake. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. And so what you've got to do is you've got to, um, I think, go to a solicitor for those kind of documents. And obviously, I'd love you to come to me, but there's lots of great solicitors out, out there. And so I think as long as you go to one solicitor that you gel with, that you like, um, that you get on with. I think they're part of your power team. You've got to relate to them. They've got to know your background. Um, things like option agreements, if you're buying, selling houses, JV agreements, I think you should go to a solicitor. A management agreement for doing rent to rents. Well, you may go to the solicitor once, but they'll give you a template. I know our law practice certainly gives you that template that you can then change them for future rent to rents that you're, you're probably doing. Um, but here's my take on it. I'm looking to do a property deal. Forget the fact that I, I own a property solicitors. I looked at it before I had a company that I'm doing a deal that's going to earn me over the lifetime of that property um, tens of thousands of pounds, maybe a hundred thousand pounds. Why would I quibble over a thousand pounds document to my solicitor? And I'm not saying a thousand pounds isn't a lot. Of course, it's a lot in the scheme of things, but it's a lot less than £100,000 in the lifetime of that property. And I want to make sure that the documents I've got are as watertight as they can be. I know legislation will change, but at that time, at that moment, I needed the document to be correct. And so I was happy to pay a solicitor to protect me. And if they didn't protect me, I could go against their indemnity insurance yeah. because what I asked them to do, they didn't do. Now, yeah. there's me now wearing that solicitor hat and saying, well, OK, we do have insurance and we have that for a purpose because we want to give you that guarantee to say that we will do our best to look after you. You have got to fall back if we don't do that, but we will look after you in the first place. Yeah, and that's really good sage advice. Um, and I know it's really tempting for people to borrow these documents and stuff, but, you know, they were commissioned for somebody else. They were written for somebody else. The deal structure is not going to be the same. And if you start taking paragraphs out that are legally uh, binding paragraphs that you don't know what you're doing, then potentially you might as well just write something on the back of a handkerchief, to be honest. I've read a lot of people's joint venture agreements, and I know what they're trying to achieve. It's just that it doesn't do it. Yeah. And I'm thinking, why have you done that? Uh, and I suppose you could argue that every joint venture agreement is not needed because as long as everything goes swimmingly, you're not going to fall out. You don't need the piece of paper. But is let that me just say that so many property deals do go sour, do go wrong. People do fall out. And then we just say to people, let's get out the agreement. Let's see what you've, you've both agreed to do. Yeah, and very often it just doesn't work. And it's a top drawer agreement. It's there if you need it. It's like any legal document, isn't it? It's only there if you need it. If you have to go and challenge something, then you've got that in writing. You know, we don't want to put you off, folks, and doing joint ventures and, you know, working with people because when you get that relationship with a business partner is and it works, it's awesome. You know, we've got some amazing business partners and we're very, very fortunate, but it's not a case of jumping into bed with the first person that you meet, you know, because forging a joint venture, forging a business relationship is like a marriage. And it's something that you have to understand expectations. You have to understand what their values are. Can you work with the person? Can you even, can you have fun with them? You know, because we work really hard. It's really important that you have to leave, you have to have that fun element as well in that relationship. So when it works, it's awesome. If you don't have the open communication, if you don't understand the expectations, that's when things start to go wrong. That's when potentially you might have to fall back to that agreement should you need it. Andy, I'm conscious of time. One last question. For me, it's really important that I have a business mentor that helps me in every stage of my growth, and I always have a mentor that is super, 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 super successful, way more successful than I am, so I can then aspire to become that person. What are your thoughts on that, and how important is that to you in your business? That's one of the most important things that we should all do. Who you surround yourself with, Rick, is absolutely the most important thing. Yeah, I've got some great friends I go out drinking with, usually on a Sunday afternoon, 
and and I love their company. We have a good laugh and a joke, but I would never get property advice from them. That's the wrong people to mix with. But socially, it's okay for an hour. But if I want to move myself on to the next step of my business, then I need to surround myself with peers of like-minded people who get what I'm about, I get what they're about, and we can be honest and open to help each other on that property journey. And so for me to have a coach, to have a mentor, someone you aspire to be like, is absolutely one of the top things that you've got to have to make it happen for you. It's a lonely place. You will get that negative monkey. We've already talked about it. It's that person that's going to help inspire you. Say, look, come on, you can do it. Why are you a bit down at the moment? What's happening? Let's talk it through and get you back up there on your bike and pedaling again and getting to where you want to be. So it's one of the best things, one of the top things you have to do, Rick. Thank you, Andy. Really good advice. And if people need to contact you for anything, what's the best way they can do that? The best way to do that, I'm readily available on social media. My law practice is based in Worcester. It's called Bradley Haynes Law. And my email address is andy at bradleyhaineslaw.co.uk. Uh, those of you may, uh, I will be around about, come and grab a business card. I'd be delighted to connect with you as well. It's not so much about me. It's about how I can help you on your property journey. And I'd be delighted to do that because somebody once helped me. And I never forget the fact, it is, as you say, Rick, about paying forward. If you help enough other people, in turn, it will come back and help you as well. So I firmly believe in that. And I talked to you about earlier the BBC where I was using property to top up my pension. Well, now I've gone full term because that BBC pension, and I had one or two others, I've now turned those into a SAS pension. That's a topic for another day. But now that SAS pension I've got is helping me to buy more property. So it's really turned on its head. And me topping up my pension means my pension is now topping up my property. Yeah, fantastic. Andy, um, I want to say thank you so much. You've been absolutely awesome, as always. Um, you know, wish you all the very, very best in the you know, success of your, your law practice and everything that you're doing. And uh, looking forward to carrying on following your journey. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show today. Lovely joining you for a cup of tea, Rick. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Go Tenant, the revolutionary new property software built by landlords and trusted by tenants. Go Tenant is your one-stop property management assistant that will take the pain away from your tenant recruitment process and the management of your properties. From advertising your property to maintenance reporting, electronic signatures to full property management software. Stop worrying about double bookings and the hassle of unnecessary admin because Go Tenants is here to enable you to seamlessly run your portfolio from anywhere in the world. Go to gotenants.co.uk to find out more.